Good morning. It's a real joy to speak to you this morning on the subject of uh, marriage and the gospel. It's actually the last in our series on good news for uh, everyday living, and it's just a real privilege to be able to share with you uh, a few thoughts from, from Scripture. I'd like to say a big thank you to the many who shared openly about the joys and challenges of, of marriage. I came back thinking that actually no one person has figured out this thing called marriage. We're all learning every day. And um, my, my hope this morning is that we can learn together uh, from, from God's Word. So are you married? Are you thinking of getting married in the future? Do you know somebody who is married? Or do you know somebody who's thinking of getting married in the future? Well, then this message is for you. Our, our hope is that we can build marriages that ultimately glorify God. We want to build marriages that are enjoyable. We want to build marriages that endure. I want my marriage to endure. I want my marriage to be enjoyable. I want to be in a marriage that ultimately glorifies God. But, but whose idea is marriage? Whose idea is it anyway? I think that our our attitude and our thinking, and hence our behavior in or outside of marriage, can be greatly influenced by our answer to the question that has been posed. Whose idea is it? If, if marriage is a human invention, then we can happily listen to what people tell us to do. However, if marriage originated in God, then it pays to give ear to incline our ears and seek to hear from God uh, who actually instituted marriage. In Genesis uh, chapter 2 from verses 18 to 23, we read about the fact that actually the initiative started with God. God uh, set up this thing called, called marriage. It originated with God. It was God's idea from the very beginning it wasn't man's idea. It was very much God's idea. And so, therefore, it's important that we, we give ear to what God says to us about marriage. Uh, this morning, I'll be seeking to just share with us uh, just one aspect of God's vision for marriage, uh, basically how marriage is meant to demonstrate the mystery of God. And I'd like to read to us from Ephesians uh, chapter 5. It's a passage that we're all very familiar with, um, and I'd like to just read a couple of verses to us from there. So from Ephesians chapter 5 from verses uh, 22, and it says to us, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, 
He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Like I said earlier, this is a passage that we're all uh, very uh, familiar with. It is both a penetrating and also illuminating passage uh, that basically contains God's directives for husbands and also for wives. Now, it's worth the while for husbands and wives to slow down and give some attention to it if they are serious about building marriages that glorify God. What is often ignored, however, from this passage is that even though the body of teaching is initially about husbands and wives, we soon encounter two other special entities, the passing of Jesus Christ and the church. The number of times that each of the four entities is referred to, whether directly or by means of a pronoun, yields the following so for wives, across 12 verses, it's nine times, eight times for husbands, eight times for Christ, ten times for the church. Now, this observation might well prompt the logical question, Paul, what is your subject matter in this passage? Are you writing about husbands and wives, which we thought you were when you started, or are you writing about Christ and the church? Now, matters are made even more complicated by Paul's inability to keep these two streams of thought separate. And so in verse 22, as he teaches wives to submit to their husbands, he says they should submit us to the Lord. And when he's seeking to give definition to the headship of the husband, he compares it to the headship of Christ over his church. And as we read on in the passage, it becomes increasingly saturated with the name and presence of Jesus Christ and his church, which is his body. Indeed, after speaking of the man and his wife becoming one flesh, Paul follows this up with a surprising statement in verse 32 of chapter 5. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So what started as a teaching on marriage for husbands and wives slowly emerges as a teaching about Christ and his church. And Paul's way of throwing more light on the subject, it seems, is to declare that all along he has been talking about Christ and the church. So what Paul knew and was trying to explain was that in the kingdom of God, marriage and the gospel are inseparable and intricately linked. You cannot, you cannot separate marriage and the gospel. He says that one is a picture of the other and one gives power to the other. The visible thing marriage, if put together properly, is intended to be an evocative reminder or picture of the gospel of God, which was worked out in the passing of Jesus Christ. 
and the power that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for a man and a woman to fulfill their roles as husbands and wife and to continue to enjoy marriage in all its fullness as God intended. This eternal gospel of God is a love story. I love the gospel. It tells the story of God's love for the world expressed in the passing of Jesus Christ. It is a story of how Jesus left the glories of heaven and entered our imperfect world to look for his bride, whom he so dearly loved. The story tells of how Jesus gave himself to be crucified on a cross. A spear was thrust in his side, and his blood was poured out for us. Amazing. This blood that was poured out provided cleansing, washing, forgiveness, and purification for all our sins, so that Jesus might present us, the people who have come to believe in him, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. After suffering in order to provide purification for our sins, Jesus ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right-hand side of the Father, waiting for the appointed time when he will come back again to receive his followers as his glorious bride with whom he is deeply in love and with whom he plans to spend a glorious eternity. So Paul is trying to place marriage within the rich context in which it rightfully belongs and where it finds its true purpose and meaning. We cannot explain marriage without reference to the gospel and the eternal purposes of God. Every marriage, therefore, is meant to be a small part of a much, much bigger story and also a depiction of this great story, this love story between Christ and his church. Marriage is ours, but even more so, it is God's from beginning to the end. God holds the patent on marriage. So when people look at your marriage and my marriage, they should see the outworking of this beautiful love story between Christ and his church. When people look at our marriages, they should stand back in awe of the amazing love that Jesus has for his church. It is with this knowledge, therefore, that we approach Marriage and the roles of husbands and wives. Uh, Paul, Paul basically is wanting to help us put things in the right context. Now, I need to explain that men and women, therefore husbands and wives, are equal before God. Same value before God. Both created in the image of God. Both dependent on each other. But I, I believe that we have different roles. And Paul elaborates on this as he opens up and addresses wives first. He talks about wives submitting. Now, I know this whole issue of submission is oftentimes a big deal, and I do understand because over the years, it, people have been abused in the context of, of marriage. People have, have, husbands have abused their wives, you know, on the back of, well, you've got to submit and all that. So, I want to start by helping us look at what submission is not, all right? Now, I know that the word submission denotes lots of negativity, 
But we want to try and then put this in the context of what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. So what submission is not? You see, submission is not another word for inferiority. So wives, when Paul asks wives to submit, he's not saying that wives are inferior to husbands. Submission is not a synonym for subjection. It is not about being controlled. Submission does not mean agreeing to everything the husband says. No, you cannot have a marriage like that. No. Submission does not mean avoiding the efforts to influence or change the husband. Submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of God. Submission does not mean the wife getting all her spiritual strength from her husband. If that were the case, my wife would really struggle because there are times when I'm running low. We sharpen each other, but ultimately my wife receives her, her spiritual strength from Jesus who never runs out. If she, if she got that from just me, I think she would struggle. So submission is not that. John Piper defines submission as the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership, helping carry this through according to her gifts. So as Paul urges wives to submit, the reason he gives is, is, is because of who a husband is. He says the husband is the head of the wife. Now, you see, God has given man, and especially husbands, within a marriage relationship, a certain headship. And his wife's role is not to rebel against that. This headship or leadership also denotes a certain degree of authority, which God gives to the husband in the marriage relationship. God has made men and women different, but one of the basic differences lies in the headship which God has given to the husband. Now, in seeking to further understand submission, we need to get to its biblical meaning. We won't get this from modern associations with the word, but from the way it is used in the passage. In order to understand the husband's headship, we need to look at Jesus. Always aim to start with Jesus. Jesus is the context in which Paul uses and develops the words headship and submission. Paul is not looking at some Hollywood movie star. Paul is not looking at some local person in the community. Paul is not looking at some role model, you know, in the country. No, Paul's eyes are on Jesus as he teaches on headship and submission. So we look to Jesus. Now, although he grounds the fact of the husband's headship in creation, he defines it in relation to the headship of Christ, our Redeemer. So you see, Christ's headship expresses care rather than control. My headship within my marriage should express care for my wife rather than control. Christ's headship expresses responsibility rather than rule. My headship within my marriage should express responsibility rather than rule. And this truth is endorsed by the surprising addition of the words, and is himself its savior. 
the head of the body and the savior of the body, Jesus says, if the husband's headship of the wife resembles Christ and his church, then the wife's submission will resemble the churches. There is nothing demeaning about this, for her submission is not to be an unthinking obedience to his rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of the husband's care. Paul is thinking here of a voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful partnership as the analogy of the relationship of the church to Christ shows. So whenever a husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the protection and provision of his love will positively enrich this. Always look at the relationship between Jesus and his church. How does Jesus demonstrate his headship over the church? Jesus shows care. Jesus shows love. Jesus shows responsibility. That is the call to husbands. And as Jesus does this, the church is able to submit. Paul writes and he says, that wives should submit to husbands or their husbands in everything. Does it really mean everything? Because you see, I'm, I'm very different from Jesus. I am not Jesus. Jesus never sinned. Jesus holy. I, every now and then, sin. I get it wrong sometimes. In fact, I get it wrong Many times, my wife will tell you, I get it wrong many times. So what's Paul talking about? Well, I believe Paul is saying this to us when he talks about submission in all things. You see, he's giving husbands a certain authority. But wives need only submit as long as Jesus is honored. So if one day I turn around to my wife and I'm trying to draw her into some fraudulent activities, I don't think my wife should look at me and say, because you're my husband, I am going to submit. Do you get the point I'm trying to make? So as long as Jesus is honored, wives are called to affirm their husband's leadership. Soon as Jesus is potentially going to be dishonored, I don't think wives ought to submit to that because ultimately they are called first to live for Jesus. Paul then charges husbands. He says, love your wives. I don't know which is easier, to submit or to love. This debate could probably go on forever. But I believe when Paul calls husbands to love, Again, Jesus is his example, or Jesus is his role model. I believe Paul is saying to husbands, you've got to learn to die. And when I read this, it really hits me. I thought, I don't think I can do that. You've got to effectively die to your own desires. You've got to effectively die to self. I'm like, God, I, I struggle with this. I can't do it, and so I need your help. Paul uses two analogies to illustrate the tender care which the husband's love for his wife should involve. He talks about Christ's love and sacrifice for his bride. It says about, from, from verse 25, he says this to us. He says, just trying to find it. 
Yes, there you are. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is thinking, good, I want to do my church good. Jesus is thinking, I want my church to look glorious. Jesus is thinking, I want my church to look beautiful. Jesus is thinking, I want my church to be radiant. On a daily basis, is thinking, I want to do my church good. That's the call to husbands. A call to effectively do good to your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands are to imitate the sacrificial steadfastness of Christ's love for his church. You see, Paul traces Christ's care for, for his church from past into future eternity. He just thinks good of his church. I want to do my church good. Husbands ought to do the same for the sake of their wives. We ought to die every day. I don't know who finds it easy. I don't. Oftentimes, I want to go for my own agenda without even thinking about my wife. Oftentimes, I'm very selfish. I'm thinking, me, 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 me. Jesus wasn't like that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was thinking, my people. Jesus was thinking, my bride. I love my bride, and so therefore, I will give my life for her. I love my bride. The charge to husbands is, love your wives, and so therefore, you give yourself for her. I think husbands have a difficult task. I often joke with my wife, and I say to her, I will love her into submission. We often have a laugh about that. The church's head is the church's bridegroom. Jesus does not crush the church. He sacrificed to serve her in order that she might become everything he longs for her to be. And a husband shouldn't use his leadership to stifle or crush his wife or frustrate her from being herself. My wife has some amazing gifts. And it's very easy for me to sit back and go, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't. No, that's not, that's not my role. My role is to say to her, I think you're brilliant at this. How can you continue to grow in this gifting? My role is to effectively stand side by side or next to her and cheer her on as she becomes the woman God intends her to be, not to crush her or stifle her, no, but to come alongside and support her so she can become who God has ordained her to be. That's what Jesus does for his church. Jesus, remember, is our example. A husband will give himself for her in order that she may develop to her full potential. 
You see, we cannot grasp fully the love of Christ for us. But Paul uses everyday experiences, and he says, just as we love our own bodies, we nourish them, we care for our bodies. Paul says, do the same for your wives. Men would often, you know, go for a nice trim, nice shave, put on some, you know, after shave, they want to smell nice and all that. They, they wear nice clothes and all that. Yes, do same. For effectively, your wife is your body. To finish off, the love Paul has in mind for the husband sacrifices and serves with a view to enabling his wife become what God intends her to be. And so, therefore, the submission and the respect he asks of the wife expresses her response to his love and her desire that he too will become what God intends him to be. Finally, the gospel at work in marriage. Four things I want to share quickly. Because of the gospel, we have hope. I love that the gospel means hope. So no matter what the situation is in our marriages, there is always hope. We can always look to Jesus for hope, no matter the challenges. I really, I'm, I'm hoping that beyond this morning, we can continue to talk about these things. I mean, we cannot finish this in 20 or so minutes. I hope that beyond this morning, we can be a real support for one another. We can come alongside one another and walk with one another. But especially for married couples, I, I want to say to you that because of the gospel, there is hope. And so we can turn to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the gospel means we have access to God through Christ. And so we can come with every challenge. We can come with, with every difficulty. In prayer, we can turn to the Lord and ask for him to help. Number three, because of the gospel, we have power to fight. We're hearing this morning about the, the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead being at work in us. We have power to, over, to fight and overcome sin, which constantly wars against us. The gospel empowers us. It enables us to stand together as couples and fight. Finally, because of the gospel, we can forgive just as Jesus Christ forgave us. Nothing greater than that. The gospel enables us to forgive. God richly bless you.